0: Well, dear friends, this afternoon as we gather for worship at these special Saturday meetings, our young people's meetings, this afternoon I want us to consider a doctrine, as we did last time, we considered the doctrine of adoption. But this time I want us to consider another doctrine, a doctrine that is so needed and so neglected today, so needed and yet so neglected. It is neglected, sadly, amongst believers in churches, It is neglected very often in the preaching of God's word, in the emphasis of the preaching of God's word to believers, as well as in the preaching of the gospel to the lost. It is a doctrine that is so essential to knowing God and living out the Christian life furthermore, and to truly preaching the gospel. It is the cardinal doctrine of the holiness of God. I want us to consider the holiness of God. Now when I say the cardinal doctrine, that word cardinal, the etymology of that word comes from the Latin cardin, which means to hinge. Sometimes we think of the Church of Rome and you think of a cardinal. It's not that cardinal that we're thinking about. It's that old Latin phrase, that word, to hinge. Everything is pivotal about salvation If we do not understand this doctrine aright, it is a cardinal doctrine, it is a hinging doctrine, it is pivotal to the true gospel, it is pivotal to knowing God, because if we do not know this doctrine, we do not know God. It is that doctrine of the holiness of God. And I want us to think about that here this afternoon. Now there are two attributes when we think of this doctrine and we consider it that we must truly understand. Yes, we've announced the doctrine, the holiness of God, but also we want to think about that holiness of God in connection with his immutability, the fact that God does not change. You know, we might say, I suppose as Christians, we are called to live a holy life, but some days we're not walking in holiness, sadly. But when it comes to God, he is immutable. That is, he does not change. So when we consider the holiness of God, we must consider the very fact that he is immutable in that holiness. And I want to consider this doctrine under those two strands. The fact that God is holy. And the fact that God never changes in his holiness. He is not capricious. He doesn't change from one day to the next. He's not on a whim like so many of us often are. So these two central tenets of Scripture, really, we could say, these two truths run through the pages of Scripture, and uh, we must never fail to meditate upon them. I trust that this will be beneficial this afternoon as we consider this doctrine. There's no better thing to do than to study God. Let me say that first of all. There's nothing better we could do this afternoon than to study God. Now maybe you might think there are better things that I could do. Well let me say there is no greater being than God. And there is no better thing than you can do than to draw near to God. The psalmist says it is good for me to draw near to God. And there is no better thing that we could do this afternoon than to spend our time considering God. And I don't want this study of this doctrine to be mere dry theological abstract learning this afternoon, but I want it to humble us. I want it to change our lives, to change our thinking, to cause us to worship him. Part of the problem of the church today is that it does not think often enough about God. It is so centered, sadly, upon man and man's felt needs. And that's a great travesty. Read here in Exodus, chapter 15. In this song, we read three passages of Scripture, and really we're going to be seeing with the Lord's help this afternoon how God is holy. Not only from Exodus 15, but also there in Isaiah chapter 6, and then in John's gospel uh, chapter 12, where it says there that the one that Isaiah saw in the temple was the Lord Jesus, who is God and who is holy. Now, notice verse 11 of Exodus 15. In this song of Moses, of course, it is an inspired song, as they were delivered by Almighty God through the passing of the Red Sea as God divided up the waters, destroyed the ancient enemy of the Egyptians and Pharaoh. And we have these words proclaimed in this song, as it were. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee? Notice, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders, if there is one thing that we are to stop and to notice, it is this, that God is glorious in holiness. Holiness is one of those attributes, or that one attribute that shines through all of the attributes of God. If you were to take all of the attributes of God, the one thing that shines through all of his attributes, whether it's his love, whether it's his Benevolence, whether it's his long suffering, whether it's his kindness, whether it is his dealings with sinners and his damning of the lost, it is his holiness. It's the one doctrine, as we will see. The holiness of God. What is God like? You see you, here's another thing. Will it be a great shock? On that great day, to come to the realization that we have not worshipped the God of the Bible. We've come to, we've worshipped the God of our own imagination, God that is not holy. You see, God is so utterly far removed from us because God is holy. We are alien to God. We're alien to God not only in our nature. Being fallen, but in our thinking, God is holy. what is that like? You people have their own ideas in this world and maybe you're, you're lost this afternoon and you're wondering what is holiness? How do you measure it? How do you know it? Well there is really none in and of themselves that are holy, but God... And the way to learn of this holiness is to, to understand the God who is holy. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods, notice there. This with a small g, or the gods that men have made. Now, of course, back in Egypt, there were many gods. And God, as it were, destroyed them. They weren't real gods. There was the God of the Nile. And remember how God turned the Nile into blood. They worshipped frogs. They worshipped four-footed animals and beasts. They worshipped the sun. They worshipped all kinds of things, but they didn't worship the true God. And God showed that he was over all these things by sending plague upon plague upon these things. Now God cannot be seen. Because God is spirit. God, essentially, before Jesus Christ became incarnate, could not be seen. Yet in time, God was manifest in the flesh. God is spirit. God is in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father was there with the Son and the Holy Spirit before the world began. And we must understand this one thing if we are to know God, that He is absolutely holy. And the holiness of God ought to make us to fear and to reverence Him. And I believe this with all my heart. The more we know of the holiness of God, the better lives those of us who are saved we will live. And the better we will preach and declare the gospel, the more faithfully we will. In Revelation 15, 4, we read, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou art holy. It is precisely the holiness of God that makes men to have a filial fear, a reverence for him. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? You see, you cannot glorify God, who you do not know. And to know God, to truly know him, is to know that he is holy, and to have a proper apprehension of his holiness, and thus to fear him. Do you remember what Elephaz said concerning God and what Job said as well? What is man that he should be clean and he which is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Behold, he putteth no trust in his saints. Yea, the heavens are not clean in his sight. How much more abominable and filthy is man which drinketh iniquity like water, now we are made in, man's, in God's image, as man. Genesis 1:26: God said, "Let us, Father, Son and Holy Spirit said, "Let us make man in our image, but we have become corrupted." We know many things are right and wrong in our lives. We have a conscience, and that is proof that we have a soul. Because impregnated upon the very fabric of our being, our soul, is what is right and what is wrong. We know God's law. It is written upon our hearts. And we know many things to be right and many things to be wrong. How do we know this? Because we're made in God's image. And we know that there is a God. Now, it's interesting, the Bible does not begin with apologetics. The Bible simply begins by asserting that God is. You know, the very first verse of the Bible you may wish to turn there, it says in the beginning, God. It says that God is. The existence of the world, my friends, is enough to assert the existence of our Creator and our conscience there's testimony to it as we sang there from the psalm 8 of the glory of god's creation and all that he has made the birds sing we can hear them through the window singing the beautiful sunsets the sunrises god's creation as we look at this world that is kept in order and is not spun into oblivion and chaos, is kept and ordered by God. And God has said that he will preserve the heavens and the earth, summer, springtime, and harvest, shall remain until the coming of the Son of Man. And the heavens and the earth, day after day, my friends, declare the glory of God. It is the full, says the psalmist, that has said in his heart there is no God. Psalm 14 verse 1, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Twice God says this in the Psalms. Not only there in Psalm 14, but in Psalm 53 verse 1 we read again, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Corrupt are they? You see, the problem is us. And yet how serious this matter is. If A, we say there is no God, and then B, if we make many imaginations of God, or we make many inventions of God. So it's vital we understand this, and we understand that even as we come to God's Word this afternoon, that we come with many prejudices and biases. And what people do very often is they reflect themselves onto God, and they say something like this, well, I imagine God to be this. Why would like God, I would like to believe God is like this, they say. You've often heard that expression, I would like to believe. Seems to be a very common expression today about many things, doesn't it? People make assumptions about other people and they say, well, I'd like to believe. Well, so often that's just wishful thinking, isn't it? It's, a, it's not reality. The reality of what you would like God to believe And what he is are two different things. The problem is God says we are corrupt, we become corrupt. We have corrupted minds. We lower God in order that he might come down to our standards. That's the problem with man. And we read there in Psalm 53 verse 2, God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and see God. And God says, no one. And he says in Romans, that no, not one seeketh after God, and they've all become corrupt, and they've all gone astray. Yes, that's us by nature. But God is, and God has always been holy. The fact that God is, is not a supposition or a possibility, but it is a statement of fact. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And friends, let me just say this. Those of us who are Christians and we seek to to reach the lost, if the Bible doesn't begin with apologetics, neither should we. I'm not saying that there isn't a place for apologetics. There's a time and place for it. But that's not where we need to begin with people. Where we need to begin is simply state the facts, because it is impregnated upon the very fiber of everybody's soul that God is. God has said it in his word in Romans 1 that God has revealed it to them. The things concerning himself by the things that he has made. So we must assert that God is but we must assert that God is holy and God is from everlasting to everlasting. There never was a time that God was not. Now the Unitarians really have a problem, because they assert, as we do, that God is love. Now we ask them, what was God loving? Before there ever was a world, before there ever was a heavens, before there ever were angels, what on earth was God loving? How could he be a God of love, and how could he be loving if there was nothing, and there was nothing? Well, we have an answer to that. It's so clear. The scriptures give the answer. That Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, was there with the Father. God is one yet in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God was perfectly happy with himself. The Father loved the Son, and the Son loved the Father. and The Holy Spirit is in both the Father and the Son, eternally proceeding from Father and Son. Before the angels ever were singing his praises, there was God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when God made the universe, friends, he did not change. Before he made anything, he was holy, and after he made the world, he was holy. And... Let me say something else. When Adam sinned, he didn't change. He didn't change his ways to accommodate Adam. He remained holy. How was he going to deal with sin? Well, this is wonderful when we consider the story of redemption. When we consider the way in which he would save sinners. What did he do? We know there in Genesis 3, 24, how he cast Adam from the garden and remember how he guarded the garden and the tree of life by the cherubims, Genesis three twenty four. So he drove out the man, and he placed, that he placed at the east of the garden of Eden, cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. God had warned Adam and Eve that the day that they sinned, not only would they surely die. But separation would take place, you see, and God is holy because he is holy. He cannot countenance sin, he cannot accommodate sin, and it meant death. And that God would have to, if he was going to save the people, make a way that they would be saved. And that is by the second Adam, the Lord Jesus. Now some people have a sympathetically, or should we say pathetically, sentimental view of God, an all-accommodating view of God. As I said earlier, they many people, they reflect or they project their own image of themselves unto God, but God is holy. In one of his letters to Erasmus, Martin Luther wrote this, he said, your thoughts of God are too human. Your thoughts of God are too human. So as we come to God's word, let us... Think biblically. God had to indict the Israelites who they thought much later on when they entered into the promised land that God would not deal with them severely. The Lord has to say in Psalm 50 verse 21, Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such as one as thyself. And sadly today this is common in the church. Many, even professing Christians, reflect themselves unto God. And people, even Christians, like to imagine a God that is not the God of the Bible. A God who does not change in terms of his divine principles and in mutable ways. God does not change. They supplant the true God with a false God. Of their wild and vain imaginations and speculations. And let us not do that. God is holy and he does not change. In Jeremiah we read these words. Jeremiah 9.23 Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But him that glorieth Glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord. If we're to glory in anything, we're to glory in God. And in not in, simply in the knowledge of him, but we glory about him. We have nothing to glory if God ever reveals himself to us, because we're not worthy of that. We're not worthy for him to reveal himself to ourselves. May God speak to our hearts, as was that word there given in Job twenty-two twenty-one. Acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. Yeah, that's it. Acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. What we really need this afternoon is a spiritual and saving apprehension Of God and especially His holiness. This is the greatest need of the soul, my friends. As I said earlier, it will be an awful shock that one day we realize that we worship the God of our own imagination and to only hear the words of Him in that final day Depart from me, for I never knew you. It will be awful on that day. To hear such words. Now, first of all, let me set before you that God is supremely glorious in all of his attributes and no less in his holiness. Well, we read it there in the verse 11. Notice, who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods, and who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness. Now, these people were wicked. The Egyptians that have just perished, pharaoh's army and we read in the psalms that pharaoh perished also in that flood but i want you to think about the very people that he delivered we read there that they were purchased now there in a typical form blood had to be shed the blood of a sacrificial lamb in that sense they were purchased In that sense, they were delivered. You see, God could have consumed the Israelites. When the angel of death passed over, they could have been destroyed. They were, yes, they were being greatly oppressed for hundreds of years in Egypt. And they were sinners like the rest. And they could have been destroyed when the angel of death passed over. Had he not have seen the blood over the dwelling place of the Israelite, the firstborn would have been struck and they never would have passed through. Those families never would have passed through. God is glorious in holiness. You see, God is holy. God could not countenance any sin and he would have countenanced the sin of the people had there been no, as it were, Connection with the blood. And that's all pointing to the very fact that in the ultimate sense, of course, all those that passed through the Red Sea and were on the other side would eventually die. It's not a purchase to eternal life. But it is a purchase in the sense that we are debtors. We are born debtors to God. When the Lord Jesus Christ teaches his disciples how to pray there in Matthew 6, he says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive others. God's people have been forgiven a great debt of their sin. And the only way, of course, that is in terms of our wrongdoing. And the Lord forgives those who come to Him, and all those that come to Him must know that they have forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. What did the Lord Jesus say? He said, This is my blood which is given for many for the remission of sins. It was through the blood of Jesus Christ when John the Baptist saw the Lord Jesus Christ coming. What did he say? Behold the Lamb of God. God could have destroyed Israel, but he was pleased to save them. And to bring them across, but it was through the blood of the Lamb, the final plague. And my dear friends, there is coming a day. There is coming a day when we will all stand before Almighty God. And those who are not under the blood of Christ will pass into a lost eternity. It's a solemn fact because God is glorious in holiness. He cannot bypass sin. Holiness permeates all of his attributes. God's name is his character. His name is holy, we're told. He is holy in all of his works. His love is called a holy love.
1: You see, in terms of our love,
0: we might love somebody because something they have to offer. We might love somebody for their looks. But in terms of God's love, it's what He does for the sinner.
1: It's unmerited.
0: His law is holy. His arm is called His holy arm. A. A. Hodge, one of the great theologians, said the holiness of God is not to be conceived as one act of God, but rather it is his entire being, and it's in all of his decrees, and it's seen in all of the outworkings of God. He is holy. What is holiness? It is perfect morality. It is to be completely upright. Friends, we must understand, if God were to send us all to hell, He would be completely upright. He would be completely just. That is before he sent his son to die for his people at Calvary. What happened at Calvary? There was a a day of judgment. The wrath of God fell on Christ. That was due to all of his people. But in his holy love, he bore it. God is described as holy and just. In the plains of Moab, you know, Moses was told he he wouldn't see the promised land. Why, Why wouldn't he see the promised land? Well, because we know he struck the rock twice. And Aaron was with him. And they were forbidden to do that. They were told to speak to the rock. They struck the rock many years before. And we're told by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 that that rock was Jesus Christ. It was a picture. It was a type, as it were, of Christ who was to be struck for sinners. And you see, all the blessings of God come through Jesus Christ who was struck for sinners. But Moses, in his anger and his frustration with a disobedient people in the wilderness struck the rock twice and God was angry with him because there was a wonderful opportunity to express how God would be a blessing to his people because Christ was struck once for sinners. But as the rock was struck twice, the Lord said to Moses, you cannot enter into the promised land. Moses you must go on top of the mountain, and Moses perished there. He didn't see, neither did Aaron see the promised land. Do You see, Christ is that rock. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 24, in the plains of Moab there, Moses, after he had struck the rock, said this about God, He is a rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. And in God's justice, my dear friends, Christ the rock was struck. What he does is right. We read there, didn't we, from Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah was in the temple and he, he saw, it says, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he, he, he saw the, the seraphims. Isaiah 6 1 In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. And we read how they covered their face, and they covered their feet, and the other two, they did fly. Then one cried unto another, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. God is holy. Not three times holy, but holy Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We cannot improve upon the holiness of God. He is altogether holy. One God, yet in three persons. And What did we read there in John 12? Who did Isaiah see? We're told there, aren't we? This is he whom Isaiah, we read, saw in the temple. He saw Christ. He who is the everlasting of days came into this world. Doesn't it amaze us that the holy God of heaven should come into a sinful world now these two things holiness god's holiness and his glory are bound up together we saw there in exodus 15:11 that god is glorious in holiness these things are bound up aren't they the scriptures declare all have sinned and come short of his glory. That means they've come short of his holiness. God's holiness is his glory. What does God do in the life of a believer? When he saves them, when he quickens them, they are changed from glory to glory. From the glory of man into the image of God is being conformed. How? How? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, but we all with an open face beholding in a glass that is this word of God that is like a mirror. The glory of the Lord. You know, as we behold Christ, he says we are changed into the same image. That's the glory of Christ from glory to glory, even as the spirit of the Lord. When God saves, friends, what he does is he not only saves us for his glory, but in sanctification it is for the glory of God. If we are Christians, we are not being changed in the likeness of God's omnipotence and, and his glorious divine attributes, but in terms of his character. That's how you know whether you are truly a Christian. Are you growing in the character and the likeness of God? Now firstly, where can we see God's holiness? Well, you see it first of all in creation. That's why we we sang it in the Psalm 8 there. When we consider man and the complexity of man. I mean, isn't it amazing when we look at things in this world? We look even what man is able to do. If man is so intelligent, and he is, how much more God You know, we might glory in man, and we might glory in our achievements. But we didn't even make ourselves. Did you decide the day of your birth? Did you decide who your parents would be? Did you... Are you even thinking of how you're digesting food right now? Are you even thinking of how each muscle and cell is working in your body? Are you even thinking about that? No, you're not. Because you are perfectly made. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And God has given you tremendous things. You made in his image. Man is the very highest form of created existence. When God made everything, he said, it is good, it is very good. So first of all, we see God's holiness in creation. It was a perfect creation, but it had to fall. When Adam fell. Because it had to suit the surroundings of a sinner. That's why heaven is going to be different. It'll suit the surroundings of people made perfect. We'd only spoil a perfect world. It's imperfect now because of sin. But the Lord is holy in all of his works. When he made everything in those six days, he said it is good. In Psalm 145, verse 17, we read, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all of his works, in everything that he made. How excellent is thy name in all the earth as we sang. But holiness is the rule of all of his actions. Why? Well, he made a perfect world. And he made a world for man to subdue and to glorify God in this world. But that man chose to go his own way and to rebel against God. And you know that's quite frankly how we all come into this world, don't we? We come as rebellious sinners, saying, "I'm going to live my way in this world." But my friend, just as this world's coming to an end, so are you. And only those that are saved. Brought to know Jesus Christ will enter that eternal world. God destroyed the world in that day in Genesis 6. It grieved, we're told, it grieved the heart of God that he had made man. Genesis 6, 5. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And we're told... And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created on the face of the earth. Why? Because God is holy. Sin was so rampant and so pervasive as it is today. And we're told that at the coming of Christ, at his last coming, it shall be as in the days of Noah. God has to come because he's holy. This world has to come to an end soon because he is holy. And he must judge sin. Consider how wicked this world is that denies God day after day. This world will come to an end. So in creation we see the holiness of God. In fall we see the holiness of God. But then... We see the holiness of God in terms of his commandments, his moral law. Again, I say it's impregnated upon the very fabric of every person. People know certain things are wrong and right. You know, now nobody likes wrong. They tolerate it in their own lives. But you know, we, we don't tolerate wrong things in other people. We don't like to tolerate wrong things in other people. We don't like chaos, we don't like disorder, do we? God would be unholy if he was a God of chaos and a God of disorder. And if God couldn't be trusted, we don't like people. Let's be honest, we don't like people that can't be trusted, They can't be depended upon. We don't like that. We don't like people who promise one thing and don't fulfill it.
1: You see, sadly, man, when it comes to himself, doesn't like a God who says he will judge sin, but who will be accommodating to his sin,
0: and perhaps accommodating to members of their family's sin. That is because we are people constantly reflecting ourselves onto God. But the law of God, friends, is the reflection of the moral essence of God. What God is like. I shall have no other gods before me. You should not give your heart to other things. You shall love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. You shall not lie. You shall not covet. You shall not commit adultery. We like those things. We don't want somebody to commit adultery against us. We don't want somebody to lie to us. We don't want somebody to be unfaithful to us. So why should God be any different? God is perfect. And he's given his law. And that law, if we walk in it, keeps us from sin. and keeps sweet communion with him. We know if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him. Of course, only the Lord Jesus ever kept the commandments of God perfectly. But you see, God is holy. And what he demands in the life of a Christian is holiness. He says, if you love me, says the Lord Jesus, you will keep my commandments. Well, the law reveals the nature of God and the will of God in two ways. Firstly, it does so by precepts and commandments. The Lord says, thou shalt bear not bear any false witness, nor steal, nor covet, nor commit adultery. Those are precepts and commandments, but also the law guards his holy justice. If God has declared certain boundaries, you don't cross those boundaries. That's why it's so important to declare God's law. We know that the law of God Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach unto any other people. When people and a nation depart from God's law, you see a nation spiraling to great degeneracy and evil. And that's what we're seeing increasingly in this, our land. Now, the law reveals God's holiness. It exposes sin. But thirdly, We see God's holiness in redemption, the way that he saves sinners. Think of it, the Lord Jesus had to come into this world, and he had to come under that law as a substitute for his people. There was no other way. Everything was lost in Adam, and we are just born like Adam was in his state of fall. And so how could God ever save anybody? Well, the Bible says, when the fullness of time God sent forth His Son, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, made under the law. And He lived under the law. He magnified the law and made it honorable. This was His great commission. And so He did. He could say, always do those things which please my Father. And then at His final hour, He said, I must lay down my life for my sheep. And he most certainly did. And that's the only way. He had to give his life as a ransom for many. We read there, didn't we, in John chapter 12, except a corn die in the ground, it abides alone. Christ is that grain of corn that would be buried in the ground and that it would bear fruit just as Adam was to Multiply, but what has Adam multiplied? A great vast multitude of sinners in this world. But you see, when you become a Christian, there's a new creation, there's a new work. Christ had to die. And what he does is he comes and he lives in his people's hearts. They die to themselves. We read in this chapter, if a man will try to keep his life for himself, he will lose it. And if a man loses his life for Christ's sake, he will find it and he will have it. When you become a Christian, there is a new principle in your heart now. You realize that this world is is a world that is living for itself and you have, as it were, People living and glorifying themselves in this world and they were all meant to glorify God. We think of, there are many parables. How there is the parable of the wheat and the tares. The wheat bear fruit and people yield food from that wheat. But what do tares and thistles bring forth? Nothing. And that's really how we are. When you're a Christian, you start to bear fruit to God. You start to live for him. You start to love his law. You start to love his ways. You start to be a different person by the grace of God. When the Lord saves, what we see is that there's holiness and redemption. What happened there at the cross? The Lord Jesus said, for this hour, I've come. We read there, didn't we, in John 12? This hour I've come, I must be put to death. The Jews said we would see Jesus. Well, they said, notice in verse 31 of John 12, the Lord Jesus. He says in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. But for this cause I came unto this hour. We know in the next chapter, he meets with his disciples in the upper room and he tells them that he is going to die and their souls become exceedingly sorrowful. And then he begins to pray in verse 28, Here, Father, glorify thy name, which... Then came a voice from heaven, the Father's voice, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people that stood by heard it, said that it thundered. Others said an angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of the world be cast out. And if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This said he, he said, signifying what death he should die. And then he says, as you read on, uh, about the grain being cast into the ground. And uh, if it abides alone, you notice back in verse 24, these people that came in the Jews, that the Greeks came into the temple, and uh, Jesus answered, verse 23, unto them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He's speaking about himself, that he had to die just as a, 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 a grain. He was speaking of his death. Why did he die? Have you ever understood the gospel that Jesus Christ had to die? That he had to take the punishment of a holy God to bear away his people's sins, to take them to heaven. That's why he had to die. Well, in redemption we see the holiness of God. But even in the counsel of redemption... And God planned salvation, the salvation of his people. It was in an atmosphere of holiness. God knew and God determined all that should happen, although God is not the author of sin and cannot be accused of being sinful. Yet God in his love purposed to save his people, having made Adam upright, And having made Adam with a free will. And Adam was made with a free will. And choice. And yet he chose to sin as you choose to sin. And as I have chosen to sin. But God in his holiness and his holy love. Chose to save sinners. To show what? His justice. His justice there at the cross. But also his holy love. That love of God could not bypass his justice. That God's justice and his mercy should meet in Jesus Christ. And that he should bear away the sin of his people. But also that one day, justice will fall upon unbelievers who despise Christ and who despise him and who despise the riches of his grace. God's wrath will be poured out upon them. The holiness of God, my friends, ought to cause us to tremble. But it also ought to humble us if we are saved. And then the holiness of God
1: is seen in the resurrection of Jesus Christ.
0: God who spared not his only begotten Son, but who delivered him up for us all. That is all who believe. We're told by Paul, raised him up for our justification. Why? Because Peter tells us in Acts 2, verse 24, whom God hath raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. You see, the Lord Jesus had no sins of his own. That's why the grave could not hold him. That's why death could not hold him. Because he purged the sins of his people at the cross. But having no sin of his own, God the Father, it was incumbent upon him because God is holy. He had to raise his holy son.
1: Now, my friend, if God spared not his only begotten Son, do you think he'll spare you if you're without Christ?
0: He will not. God is holy. And furthermore, heaven itself is a place of holiness where there is no defilement. No defilement. John says, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. And then we read these striking words, For we shall see him as he is, and every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. And I want to speak on that just a little while. Few minutes. You notice what John says there. First John three, verse two and three, and every man that has this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. There's no
1: hope of heaven if there's no desire to
0: be holy. God is holy. The careless sinner. Or the empty professor doesn't really care about holiness in the life. Really doesn't. The one who is truly a Christian and who knows God desires to be like him. We saw Isaiah in the temple. And Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord. And he said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. As he heard the seraphim crying as well, and he said of himself, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. The seraphim declared the glory of God. Isaiah saw it.
1: And Isaiah said, I am this unclean man. And he saw a need, as God pointed out, that these were an unclean people. And
0: what happened is, one of the coals, the live coals from the altar was taken and touched Isaiah's lips, and the Lord said, it's been cleansed. But what was upon that altar, there would have no doubt have been animals upon the altar. We know this from the Old Testament, sacrifice. And you see, it's only by, as it were, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, the the animals were burnt there upon the altar and the fat upon the coals. And really, it's a picture that only by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, friends, can we be made acceptable to serve God. It's humbling. But that's really where the Christian life begins, doesn't it? We cannot render any service to God unless we see, like ourselves, as Isaiah saw himself, as unworthy And not fit to serve God. The more we see of God, the more we see of our sinfulness. But the more we see our need of Christ. And in seeing Christ, we become dependent upon him day by day. And we desire to be like him. You know, being a Christian, the Lord saves us not simply from hell and wrath to come, but his name is called Jesus. For he saves his people from their sin. To be like him, to be conformed to his image. Paul tells us, doesn't he, in Romans 8. For whom God foreknew, he predestinated, and those whom he predestinated, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those who he justified, he glorified. And then he tells us that God works all things together to them that love Him, to them that are called according to His purpose. And what is His purpose? Well, Paul tells us to be conformed to the image of His Son. And as we read there in John, every man that has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. Holiness is going to be in the believer. This desire to be like Christ This desire to glorify him in
1: this sinful world. Is that your desire
0: this (laughs) afternoon? Where is your heart? God doesn't change. God saves us to serve him. It's really why we're saved. We're saved for his glory. We're saved to be like Christ. We are to be called a holy people. When somebody looks at your life, my friend, do they see a
1: world link? I'm I'm sad to say
0: that I'm seeing increasingly many young people who are looking more and more like the world
1: than they do the children of God.
0: We must understand that we cannot have this hope We have no warrant to believe that we have any hope if we are not in the business of mortifying sin. That if we are not in the business of getting to know God better in our lives, that is, desiring to please Him who is holy and living a holy life. I'm not saying that we're ever saved by that. God forbid. But if there is not an increasing desire To be holy there's something fundamentally wrong, isn't there? If we simply want to
1: come along to these meetings to see people saved, something lacking. Sure, we want people to be saved.
0: And God will save his people. But what is our desire in the Christian life? What is our purpose in the church? Our purpose is to glorify God. Why does the church exist? It exists for God's glory. It doesn't exist
1: for man. The church exists
0: for God's glory. And to show forth a holy people who are concerned for God's glory and his honor. and to live those godly lives
1: in Christ.
0: If God were to act unfaithfully, he would behave contrary to his nature. When God calls us, it is to be holy. It's the reason he's called us. If your conscience isn't pricked a sin... In your life, you have to ask the question Is your conscience really been awakened? Has it? If we confess our sins, we must know also that God is faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe we have failed in our lives as those of us who are Christians. What are we to do? Remember this. God is holy. And he has called
1: you to be a holy Christian. To
0: glorify his name. We don't exist for ourselves. And the whole reason he has saved us is to glorify him one day in heaven. If we we don't enjoy that, we have to ask, have we ever entered in to a knowledge of God. It's a horrible thing, isn't it, to think that we're going to have so much truth and yet really be unsaved and be a lost person. What is heaven going to be like for those who imagine that the Christian life is no more than just knowing that Jesus Christ died for their sins. Heaven is a holy place, and my friends, you're going to feel mighty uncomfortable in that place of heaven, if you are comfortable in sin. It's not a place for those who are comfortable in sin. If you are feeling increasingly uncomfortable in your sin, one of the things is, as a Christian, it's a bit of a paradox, really, in the Christian life, as we go on, the more we go on in holiness, the more sinful we see ourselves to be. And so unworthy of God, and so unworthy of His love. We feel that we just can't give Him all that He deserves. We feel that we fail Him every day. But you know what? We cast ourselves back on Calvary and all that Jesus Christ has done for his people. And thank God the Father that he gave his Son, and really that ought to melt our heart over our sin, and we say, well, how can I live to sin any longer? If Christ really died for me, how can I go on? He's called me to live a holy life, and glorious for his name. Friend, God is holy, and he will have A holy people. Well, maybe the Lord is chastening you. But he chastens you, Peter says, because we are partakers of the divine nature. God has put his spirit in us that we should be conformed to his likeness. And if you are without Christ, let me warn you as I close. There is no other way that a sinner could be saved but by the holy righteousness of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And we must come by Jesus Christ as penitent, broken sinners over our sins, and realizing afresh that God is holy. And God is just. That God is a God of mercy. Who gave his holy son. So that all that believe upon him. Shall be saved. And not be lost. That final day. That ought to make you thankful. If you are saved. And live to his glory. In that hymn, how shall I praise the eternal God. That infinite unknown, who can ascend his high abode, or venture near his throne. Heaven's brightest lamps with him compared, how mean they look and dim. The holy angels have no spots, yet can't compare with him. Holy is he in all his works, and truth in all his delight. But sinners and their wicked ways shall perish from His sight. O friend, seek the Lord and you Christians, remember without holiness no man shall see the Lord. If God has loved you, he will work holiness and righteousness in your life. May you be holy as Peter says, as he
1: is holy. Amen.